Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Hi, I'm Klaus Yoder. I teach and write on the history of Christianity, uh, specifically the Protestant Reformation and on the way rituals shape politics and philosophy in the West. I'm really interested in doing this podcast project on the devil because I see Christian ideas about devils and demons as still being so present in what otherwise appears to be secular spaces, like in national politics, pop culture, and our common sense moral judgments about each other and ourselves. We have the devil on Netflix shows. We have famous Hollywood movies like The Exorcist with the devil. But I think more importantly, we have stories and theories that help us understand basic ideas like responsibility, forgivability, free will, the ability to change, the failure to change. All this comes out of Christian reflections on the diabolic and the demonic. And so it's really important for understanding our sense of self and our sense of morality. But on a grander geopolitical scale, the other thing that emerges from Christian ideas about devils and demons is a theory of human history and society that enabled early modern Christians to see the devil's works in the lives and cultures of their geopolitical rivals and eventually in the colonized peoples of the Americas, Africa, and Asia. So ideas and stories about the devil are part of the mechanism for causing devastation and suffering in the early modern and modern periods. The devil is this character that explains a lot about widely held assumptions in the North Atlantic world concerning human nature and morality, but he also helps us see how Christian colonizers justified violent exploitation and genocide. I'm Travis Stevens, and like Klaus, I'm a historian of Christianity, but I specialize in the Middle Ages. My interest in the pod falls somewhere between my academic side and the personal. My teaching and research focus on Christian mysticism and the history of love, but I also have this interest in medieval heresy. And that's all about the sort of us versus them dynamic, which we're going to talk about a lot this season in the pod. As a queer Christian, I also have some experience with this kind of rhetoric. Though I was lucky enough to be part of communities that accepted me for who I am, nonetheless, that coming together of my academic interest in heresy on the one hand and my personal experience with this particular kind of Christian rhetoric about the devil and about evil brought me to this topic and make it seem particularly interesting and important. So whether we're talking about 21st century queer people or we're talking about the history of medieval heresy, you've got similar kinds of rhetoric, even though it's important to note that sometimes that similar looking rhetoric can fool us into seeing exact similarities where actually the rhetoric is being deployed in different ways. And I think that really matters. That's another reason why I wanted to do this pod was to explore that really interesting way that rhetoric around the devil, demons, and evil can be used and was used in these varying ways in different times and places. So Klaus, where does the title for the pod come from? Yeah, it's just, a, it's an image from the book of Revelation of a sea monster, the beast from the sea who represents the forces of evil and the power of the devil in this last book of the New Testament.
In this season, we'll be covering some foundational themes related to the devil. This is a history podcast, but we're not going to go necessarily in a strict chronological order. And that's because we think it's appropriate to this particular character, because the devil is this composite figure who doesn't really have a kind of birthday, a genesis of the idea that then develops in a linear way. That's not how it works. So this means that we're going to be jumping across time periods to connect key features of the devil. This first episode is about temptation. Thanks for joining us. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. Thus begins the story of Adam and Eve's temptation, as told in chapter 3 of the book of Genesis. Without the snake, there would be no fall. And yet, the biblical text gives us only the barest sketch of this crucial character. God creates the man and the woman from the earth, and sets them in paradise with the admonition to refrain from eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Enter the serpent. The snake whispers in the ear of Eve, asking about this rule that God gave them. Eve replies that if they eat from the tree, they will die, but the serpent counters that they will not die, but be like God, knowing good and evil. They eat, and then Adam, Eve and the serpent alike receive curses from God for their actions. This episode is foundational to Christian understandings of evil, especially the separation of the tempter from the free will of the sinner. That is to say, Adam and Eve freely choose to transgress the law. They were not compelled to do so against their will by either God or the serpent. Perhaps the next most important biblical text for Christian notions of temptation, is that of Jesus in the desert, remembered by Christians during the season of Lent and found in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. According to the Gospel writer, Jesus sought out the devil. The point of going to the devil in the first place was to be tempted by Satan. The devil obliges with a series of three temptations, each of which Jesus resists by pointing to scripture. The first temptation is for Jesus to break his fast, The second is to jump off the pinnacle of the temple to be rescued by angels. And the third is to rule over the entire world. The devil even spouts scripture. When he tries to convince Jesus to jump off the temple's highest point, he recites from Psalm 91. He will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Not only a tempter, the devil is now wily and clever. We also get shades of the devil's political power. In the final temptation, he offers to give Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, kingdoms that the devil must therefore have had dominion over in the first place in order to offer them to Jesus. Taken together, Genesis chapters 2 and 3 and Matthew 4 paint a portrait of temptation and seem to suggest that the devil's role with regard to humanity is to seduce them into transgressing God's law. They tell us remarkably little about the devil's identity. Who exactly is the devil? Where does he come from? Tradition tells us the devil was originally an angel named Lucifer, who was God's favorite in heaven, and who, through his own pride, rebelled against God, and as a result, was banished from heaven. Tradition also tells us 
The devil tempted Adam and Eve because he was envious of humanity's position as the masters of the newly created earth. And tradition also tells us the devil took the form of a serpent to tempt Eve to eat the forbidden fruit. Most people think that the story of Adam and Eve from Genesis includes these details. Spoiler alert, nope. For starters, Genesis at no point identifies the serpent as the devil or as possessed by the devil. Clearly, Christians exceeded the sketchy portrait available in the canonical scriptures of the Hebrew Bible and New Testament. So where do these ideas, firmly cemented in the Christian tradition from its earliest centuries down to the present day, come from? Arguably, the most important text about the devil that you've never heard of is the life of Adam and Eve, sometimes called the Apocalypse of Moses, probably written in Greek between the 3rd and 5th centuries. Scholarship on the subject is weirdly thin for such an influential and popular text. Versions exist in Latin, Armenian, Georgian, Slavonic, and Coptic, and in secondary variants in most medieval European vernacular languages. Think Old French, Middle English, etc., and it even influenced retellings of the story in medieval Hebrew and Arabic. The variants are not merely translations. There are significant differences between these versions, including the Greek and Latin versions we will discuss. The Greek version, which reads like a collection of episodes that fill in the gaps of the Genesis story, includes a couple of episodes pertaining to our focus on the devil and temptation. First, the life includes an account of how the serpent comes to be possessed by the devil. Although Genesis does not identify the serpent with Satan, the Greek life of Adam and Eve makes that connection explicit. The devil says to the serpent, quote, I hear that you are wiser than all the beasts, and I have come to counsel you. Why do you eat of the tares of Adam and his wife, and not of paradise? Rise up, and we will cause him to be cast out of paradise even as we were cast out through him. The serpent said to him, I fear, lest the Lord be wroth with me. The devil said to him, Fear not, only be my vessel, and I will speak through your mouth words to deceive them. The second episode that pertains to our theme is one in which the devil speaks directly through Eve, just as he has with the serpent before. This speaks to the question of free will and temptation, as well as misogyny. Is Eve more bound to the devil? The devil was speaking, and I began to exhort him and said, Come hither, my lord Adam, hearken to me, and eat of the fruit of the tree of which God told us not to eat of it, and you shall be as a god. The Latin version of the text adds a fascinating second temptation of Adam and Eve by the devil, in which the first humans decide to try to regain entry to paradise through an act of penitence, in which they separately immerse themselves in the waters of two rivers and refrain from speaking. The devil foils their plans by assuming the shape of an angel and convincing Eve that God has relented because of their repentance and the prayers of the angels, only to find that she has been tricked again by Satan. The episode ends with Adam asking Satan why he continues to persecute them, to which the devil replies with his origin story. God banishes the immortal and once angelic devil from heaven, 
dooming him to suffer for all eternity, it turns out, because of a mortal man he fashioned from dirt. Incredibly, the archangel Michael worships this dirt creature as bearing the image of God. The devil refuses to worship Adam, sneering, quote, I will not worship him who is lower and posterior to me. I am prior to that creature. Before he was made, I had already been made. He ought to worship me. End quote. Michael warns the devil that if he refuses to worship Adam, then God will be angry. The devil snaps, quote, If he grows angry with me, I will place my seat above the stars of heaven, and I will be like the Most High. End quote. Here the devil is in fact quoting Isaiah 14, which confers on him a new backstory as God's shining angel, Lucifer. This same angel rebelled through pride to be, quote, like the Most High, end quote, but fell from glory. And now all that is left for him is to take revenge on Adam, who robbed him of his celestial throne. This week we're talking about the figure of the devil as a serpent, as a tempter, and we're going to be exploring over the next few episodes different archetypical identities the devil has. And we're not aiming for a strictly chronological presentation of who the devil is, but we're trying to nonetheless deliver historical information and interpretations of who the devil is. That's right. One way of thinking about this is that we'll be looking at different roles that the devil occupies in the history of evil. And so I thought just one of many ways in would be to start with this devil as tempter, devil as serpent, as a starting point for our longer, you know, wandering non-chronological history. Right. And it's such a, I think it's such a recognizable role, such a recognizable character. It's the stuff of like Saturday morning cartoons and, and, you know, it's sort of this easy citation point, I think, in our culture with the temptation in the garden as, as the sort of primal scene of satanic influence in human history. But obviously what we'll see is it's pretty complicated. Absolutely. And one of my favorite parts of this episode is that we'll be doing a little bit of myth busting, right? We're going to go through some of everything you thought you knew about the devil and the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve and fig leaves and apples, and try and dispel some of those common myths about who the devil is and who the devil isn't. Exactly. So maybe, maybe that's a good you know, transition point into sort of getting into a little bit about the primeval history of Genesis. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, let's go for it. Okay. Genesis, it's a story a set of legends and myths about the creation of the world, of the cosmos, and of human beings, and everything that went wrong from that point on. And we associate it with the beginning of everything. In fact, it's not even close to being one of the first things written in the Hebrew Bible, which is a fact that still surprises me. I'm so, you know, used to reading this in this particular order and to learn that there are parts of this in the Hebrew Bible that are, that are much older and that the beginning of things isn't really the beginning of things. It's something I think we see through this entire story of the devil that it's really hard to find a beginning. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, the name we call this book in English, Genesis, 
is of course not its name in Hebrew, but it means beginning. And the first few words in Hebrew do mean in beginning, right? It is a starting place of sorts, but it, it's funny how, yes, exactly like you said, this isn't the beginning of a linear history of anything, right? It's a looking back in many ways at, at an origin story that comes later as historians, as we know, um, was not the earliest text that we have, but helps paint this picture of how do we think about, especially the history of a broken world? Where does that come from in particular? And that's one of the many questions that this opening story, I think, tries to tell. And I think the sort of the question of brokenness is important. We're talking about a tempter figure here. And, and just like to sort of unpack for a second, like what, what is the temptation that Adam and Eve face, you know, when they encounter this, uh, the serpent who's described as the craftiest of the animals. And, you know, Adam and Eve are supposed to have dominion or sort of a stewardship role, you know, a hierarchical priority above animals. And yet we're encountering this, this very sort of clever, crafty beast. We know from the intro that you gave in the text that you're drawing on that we have this, this tree called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Uh, that's the one tree that's been forbidden to the two first humans to eat of. I always find it so funny that it's eating of the tree or eating of the fruit in, in these texts. It always, it's, it's, so, it's so strange sounding and it sort of like seems like deliberately archaic. What do you see as the nature of the temptation? I mean, of course, there's a long history of debating what exactly the temptation is and then what it is that they did wrong. One way of thinking about what they did wrong is there was a mandate, there was a law an unwritten law, but one spoken by, you know, the Lord, all caps, obviously, to not eat of that tree. Again, eating of the tree. Yes, yes. But is the nature of the transgression merely breaking that law, merely going against it? Or is there something else that's being pointed to? Number one, is the fruit an apple? No, we don't know that uh, from the story. <laughs> yeah. But also, what is that meant to stand in for? The knowledge of good and evil and its, its relationship to death is a particularly interesting one. No longer being able to eat of the tree of life once you've eaten of this other tree. Knowing good and evil. And what does that mean? In the same breath, the serpent says, oh, you think you're going to die if you eat of this the tree? That is completely wrong. What's going to happen is you're going to know good and evil and you're going to be like God or perhaps like God's. The Hebrew is unclear there, right? Yeah. You're going to be divine in some way or like the one creating God. Yeah. And so you were talking about the temptation as a temptation of transgression, of, of disobedience. And it's interesting, though, when we consider that eating of this mysterious fruit is what is supposed to provide knowledge of good and evil, right? There's this question of what does it mean to be, what does it mean to to break a law or to create or to commit a moral transgression when you don't yet have knowledge of morality. Uh, there's a kind of a paradoxical, you know, element to that, um, that I think sort of shows us the kind of the way that in which the story is, is very much a myth and not a, not a, not a particularly useful myth in many ways for exactly explaining the origin of evil. And so I think like there's that paradox is sort of a clue as to sort of how nebulous and unclear the sort of primeval story is for getting a complete, a complete read on how we're supposed to think about the origin of evil in, in this tradition. 
Oh, I think that's completely right. One of the things that also strikes me is the relationship between moral knowledge and God. You'll be like God, you'll be divine in a certain sense, if you get this knowledge, that's what's going to happen to you. That's the promise of the serpent anyway. And whether the serpent is telling the truth is maybe an open question. It's an interesting one anyway. But I, I think it also tells us something about the nature of this God. You'll become like God in this way. What, what do we know really about God so far in the story other than that God is a creating God, that God sets a rule, and now we know that God is one who understands morality. Right, but then this God also has Adam and Eve hustled out of the garden to make sure they don't get, you know, access to the tree of life. You know, they've 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 eaten of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and it's like, well, they, we better get them out of here before they eat of the tree of life because they'll be too much like me. You know, we think of the the serpent as a trickster, but there's also kind of some uh, some craftiness on the part of God in this story too. And I have a feeling that we'll come back to that. <laughs> theme of the similarity yes. between yes, God the, and the devil at some moral ambiguities of God will will feature large in, in in this twisted tale of the history of the devil. Um, but yeah, we were saying you know there's a lot of craftiness on display in the garden, and of course the the most you know sort of the character most commonly associated with that is is the serpent or the snake. And like, what's what's going on with this character? in in this story like is this is this character a personification of evil yeah well we have some clues from other places in the hebrew bible and also in the book of revelation that the serpent is not some sort of standalone character but in fact is kind of a weird and weak echo if you will of a much more sort of cosmically threatening force of chaos, actually, that comes from older Sumerian and Babylonian sources. But it's funny, you know, there's this connection between serpent. It, in English, we get serpent, we get dragon, right? Yeah. We get these, these different words, but this creature pops up in a lot of ancient Near Eastern mythology, but in different guises. While I think there's, some, there's an element of chaos, you know, the serpent certainly comes in and messes up the order yeah, of the garden, yeah, right, by yeah. meddling. Um, <laughs> but craftiness and a cosmic force of chaos are really two different things, I think. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. I would agree. And so, like, it, it sounds like what you're telling me is that the serpent isn't a dragon, isn't some cosmic personification of chaos. You're telling me that you're, you're really going to sell me that the snake is, is not the devil. Is this really what you're telling me? Well, what I, I mean, spoiler alert, he's <laughs> not, you know, identified as such in the book. Right. So, right. I know we, we've spent so much time just culturally, right. Absorbing this knowledge that the serpent is obviously the devil. It's the devil who tempts Adam and Eve in the form of a serpent. Right. right. Um, but nowhere does it say that in, in Genesis. Right. It's an early indication, I think, of how creative Christian theologians will be in trying to really layer an understanding of a sort of apocalyptic understanding, an eschatological understanding of human history onto this moment in the Hebrew Bible. Um, and for example, uh, certain later thinkers, I'm thinking of like Melanchthon, they look at this sort of moment when God is telling the serpent that he's going to put enmity between you and the woman and that their offspring will be at war forever. And that 
her offspring will strike your head and you his heel. This sort of hermeneutical creativity, or you know, you could sort of say the sort of uh, the, the sort of uh, flimsy <laughs> pretext of interpretive skill here is uh, seeing that promise of Jesus is going to come and stomp on the head of the serpent, who is the devil. And so you sort of have the circularity where it's like you know this prophecy of Christ defeating the devil, but that idea of Christ defeating the devil is twisting the story of, the, of what's happening in the Garden of Eden here. So there's this kind of circularity to the way that they're, that later authors will, will try to make sense of this as this sort of primal satanic temptation scene. Wow. So let me see if I'm getting this right. What was originally God's curse on Adam, on Eve, on the serpent, prefigures in some way a movement that later Christian thinkers will associate with salvation, with Christ, in, and in particular with Christ conquering the devil, right? As the serpent, you know, again, we have that identification of the serpent with the devil, but that's stepping on the head of the devil. Is, is that the part that's going to be seen as the future eschatological, just sort of end of time, conquering at the devil by Christ? Is that right? Yeah, exactly. And you see this in the sort of iconography a lot, where a sort of a, a triumphant Christ is, you know, standing atop of a prone devil. And, and sometimes you see that heel crunching into the skull of the, of the sort of stupefied, you know, overcome devil. And I think you see that being read back into this text, even though in the text, it seems very even. The offspring and descendants of Eve will strike at the serpent's children's heads, and then they in turn will snap at the heels of those children. Whereas the, the Christian interpreters will be like, the real emphasis is on the striking the head. That's the gospel in a nutshell right there. And it's just, it's interesting and I think suggestive for how important this myth becomes for Christian doctrine. And yet a lot of work has to go into squeezing those expectations out of the text. Okay, so, I mean, I think we've, what we've established is that there isn't an identity in the Genesis text between the serpent and the devil or any other kind of big cosmic enemy. So, like, how does it happen that they become synonymous with each other? Like, what, what does it take to get to that identity? Well, to answer that question, I think we need to look at a sort of understudied and not very well-known text. It's called The Life of Adam and Eve. It has components that were composed by Jewish writers, but also has what we think are later Christian interpolations. This is not to be found in the Bible anywhere, but it seems to be a major expression of slash influence on the Christian interpretive imagination. Yeah. The Life of Adam yeah. and Eve is a story that fills in the blanks. There are a lot of questions left unanswered from that Genesis narrative. Yeah. It seems typical in some ways of like these, you know, sort of mythical texts that, are, that sort of just sort of give you these broad, almost abstract sequence of events. So like the, the text of Genesis doesn't really care about why the serpent tempts Adam and Eve at all. That question seems irrelevant within the sort of the textual world of Genesis. But something like the life of Adam and Eve written centuries later, you know, it wants to know like, how did this go down? What, what's going on with this serpent? And it's being written in a sort of an apocalyptic moment in the Jewish and Christian traditions. And so the idea of a cosmic foe 
being responsible for humanity's trials and tribulations makes a lot more sense. And if this foe is responsible, is responsible for trials and tribulations in the present, then he's been at war with us ever since. Um, and so I think we sort of get into this sort of strange work of identifying, of reading the devil into the serpent in Genesis. What about this question in the Greek version of the text of Satan tempting the snake? Isn't there a kind of pre-temptation that happens in the text where the snake is just some animal in the garden, but Satan comes along and says, hey, what if I inhabit you? What if I basically possess you? And presents a kind of reason for which this identity that we say the text presents happens, a kind of backstory, if you will, of how the snake becomes the devil's mouthpiece. Right. It's like, well, don't you want to do better than eating the Adam's weeds? <laughs> <It's> <laughs> yes. Like, it doesn't really have to sell him that hard. It's like, well, like maybe you could be eating better. Um, and the snake's like, yeah, I guess I'm ready to be a demonic tool, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sort of strange, a strange proposition, but one that, you know, I guess the snake wasn't that clever <laughs> at the end of the day. Well, the Latin version presents it a little differently. The snake character gets a scene in which he attacks Seth. Now, who is Seth? Remember, Adam and Eve have a son named Abel, who is murdered by his brother, Cain. And so Eve becomes pregnant again with another son, who is Seth, who functions as a kind of replacement for the murder to Abel. Um, not to mince yeah, words really here. sentimental people, these guys. Oh, yeah, completely. Right. Irreplaceable. My child is irreplaceable. <laughs> we have a bit of ambiguity in this story in the Latin version, because when the serpent speaks, it is in the first person plural. The we form is used when the serpent speaks. And we're not entirely clear if that's the same model as the Greek version, where you've got this mouthpiece approach and the kind of possession of the snake by the yeah. devil, right? It's a little bit less clear, but I think we have a clue with that first person plural, with that we, use of we, that something similar might be going on. And the devil appears in different ways in the various lives of Adam and Eve, sometimes disguising, and this is like very Pauline, like disguised as like angel of light, sometimes just hanging out as himself, just, you know, sort of berating Adam and Eve confessing about his sort of backstory sometimes and then it's not clear like are you still possessing this snake even as the story tries to answer the question as to how the snake becomes this mortal enemy and vehicle for temptation the identity still remains ambiguous even with the sort of explanatory work that this uh this you know the lives of adam and eve are supposed to be doing it's funny that it makes an effort at answering some of those questions that are lingering from the Genesis story, uh, but can't even get there, even when it seems explicitly to be trying to do so. But I think we do walk away knowing that there is a very clear association between the devil and the serpent, whichever version of the life of Adam and Eve that you're reading. They're tied together in some way that is lacking, certainly in the Genesis story. What we're getting at through all this stuff is this question of, like, why is any of this happening at all? So we've sort of answered the question of, okay, why did the serpent tempt Adam and Eve? Uh, the devil made me do it, right? I was like, well, why is the devil doing that? And so we get into that question a little bit more in the Latin version of the life of Adam and Eve, which as I think, I think you mentioned is a, is a later version. The, the Greeks earlier, there are all kinds of languages that this was translated into. And the Latin has a number of more sort of decidedly apparent Christian elements. 
and so one of these elements is trying to explain the fall of the devil, a topic that we will come back to again and again and again, I think in this podcast, but like in, in this version, Satan is commanded to worship Adam, which is a little weird. Like why, why is Satan commanded by the archangel Michael to worship Adam, Travis? Like what sense does that make? Well, it's a weird moment. God is the one you would expect to be worshipped, and we'll talk more about that, but the rationale for it is that this is God's image. Therefore, the angels should bow down and worship God's image. So it's not just because it's a human being, but there is a kind of theological reason for why that happens. So in, in many ways, it's, it's, you know, it's worth thinking about this for a second. The angels are way more powerful. They sort of have more ready access to God. But this sort of more recently created sort of more fleshly, earthly being has a more direct connection to God than the angels themselves through this idea of the image of God. But there's, I, I can't help it being like a little taken aback by the, the, the moment because there's something sort of like provocative about this scene of imagining an, a one angel commanding another it's like stop stalling get down and worship it you know it's like so weird it, it seems so uh it seems so unbecoming you know and of course in spite of itself you can sort of s- start to sympathize with the devil a little bit you're like man like who's this guy <laughs> yeah and that emotional we get a kind of emotional rationale for this enmity that's going to be speaking of the enmity that that's given at the end of genesis between the snake and the woman for example there's an enmity in this story as well between satan and adam in particular because of this moment at a narrative level i think it's one of the most successful moments in this version of the story it's really dramatic yeah it's like really you know you you you, and it sort of takes you into you know sort of hearts and minds in a way that Genesis is just so like austere and abstract and and here you're sort of getting a little bit more psychology. We still have this point of like, okay, so why did the serpent tempt Adam and Eve? Because the devil made him do it. Why did the devil make the serpent do this? Because the devil, because he doesn't agree to worship Adam, he and his buddies are kicked out of heaven. You know, I think like it's sort of worth thinking about this as another moment of temptation. The serpent's tempted Eve's tempted. I think it's worth noting that Eve is, is tempted first in these stories, mm-hmm. um, as is, it's true, and it's true in the in the Bible too. But and they make a big point of, oh well, like when the angels stopped guarding Eve, then the devil sprung. And you know, this is the sort of thoroughgoing misogyny of Eve's role in all of this that's really amplified in these stories in a way that's not completely true of the original. But you know, so we have this like the temptation to Eve, the temptation of Adam, but there's also this moment when the devil first refuses to worship Adam where you know, we have a, a stumbling moment, a, you know, a moment of, of, a, of a decision, of a choice, which I think as we'll see, like that's kind of, of of the essence when it comes to temptation. You have to be able to refuse or assent. And the devil himself is implicated in temptation. He's caught in temptation. But then who's tempting the devil? You know, we sort of have this problem of infinite regress um, in, these, in these stories of rebellion and fall. Right. I think to think of it in a passive construction that the devil is tempted is perhaps the right. cheater's way out of this. Because right. is it something about the devil himself 
So then does he still have free choice, which is really important in these stories. From the perspective of most Christian theology, anytime a character does something that's considered sinful or wrong later, you have to be able to point back and say, God did not create this person this way or this entity this way, this divine being this way. This person had free will and had the ability to choose, chose chose the evil path. Because if you don't do that, then speaking of regress, this gets, this gets thrown back onto God. I'm sure we will have lots of time to talk about this in future episodes. Yeah, of course, of course. Even this early, we're sort of seeing that problem unfold where it's like, okay, well, why is the devil in this temptation situation to begin? Like, what about the way that God has set this up that makes this possible? Right. How is the devil created to be able to choose either? It's, it seems that the devil is very much created like a human being here, right? It's a very human kind of devil that we have. And we'll have different yeah. versions of the devil that are much more, you know, like a divine eternal principle of evil. This is not that. This is one who could choose either way and chooses the evil way. Right, right. Okay, I mean, I think we're seeing like here how later, you know, thinkers in the Jewish and and Christian traditions are retelling this story. But I think it would be worth getting into some ideas about temptation that come out of the New Testament itself that are sort of being layered back onto the sort of creation story. So maybe it's, it's, it's worth taking a moment and looking at a key scene of temptation in the gospel. One of the, the earliest moments of temptation we see in the New Testament, in the gospels, one of the oldest gospels, the oldest source gospel, the gospel of Mark, in the third chapter that we had this sort of, I guess, familiar image of Jesus sequestering himself in the desert. And the, the language here is, is, is interesting because it has the, the spirit driving Jesus into the desert to be tempted by the devil. It doesn't go into a lot of detail. We get, it's big on mood, but sort of short on like the details of the events. So we have this image of Jesus sort of hanging out, sort of, you know, sort of laying low with these, these sort of animals, the kind of animals that are wild and hunted and he's being harassed by the devil. But we get, we get no information about what, what that means at all. There's no, there's no detail in Mark about what the temptation in the desert really amounts to. But there are other, you know, obviously there's some other, this, this, this is not the only version of this story and it gets expanded on. As we see, like we see this pattern of things being expanded and, and sort of the, the gaps being filled in. So like, where are some of the places in which it's filled in? Just as we've seen that the life of Adam and Eve helps fill in some of the gaps of the sparser narrative of Genesis, we see something very similar going on in the Gospel of Matthew, at least for this story, that clearly borrows from that idea in Mark, but adds a lot more detail. So here, Jesus goes to the desert explicitly, isn't driven by the Spirit, as you mentioned, happens in Mark 3, but instead goes to the desert to be tempted by the devil. Because apparently everyone knows the devil hangs out in the desert. Already, (laughs) the rules have obviously changed before we had, you know, the devil hanging out in a garden and also maybe possessing snakes. So things have changed. Taste taste change, you know, like it just... (laughs) (laughs) And um, we also have this, this idea that Jesus goes to the desert. He's there and he, before the temptations begin, he's been fasting for 40 days, right? And 40, this, you know, 
in New Testament speak 40 and really in Hebrew Bible speak as well, 40 just means for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Jesus has been fasting for a really long time in the desert. And that's our kind of setup, our preamble. He's been denying himself. He's been fasting. And so the first temptation that we get is related to the fasting in particular. And that is turn these stones. You're hungry. You know, the devil is like, you're hungry. Obviously you've been fasting. Why don't you just turn these stones over here into bread? Because everybody knows you can, right? You're like, you're Jesus. So why is this the first temptation of Jesus? You know, what does this tell us about who the devil is? Is it just sort of opportunistic? Or is there, are we supposed to read some sort of meaning into the fasting? Is the yeah, fasting, yeah. you know, is that, a, is that a, a pious act? Is that an act of worship, right? Or, yeah, and I think, I, I think you're right. And, and it ties to the fasting, which is like, you, you look at the, the, the gospels and this fasting in the desert and in later Christian spiritual culture, like this, like this sort of spiritual training, like he's getting, Jesus is getting ready to, to do his ministry and stuff. And yeah, I think there is a sort of positive uh, valuation of that act. It's, I don't think it's a neutral, you know, it's like, ah, you know, he just, he was one fasting, like whatever, you know um, I think it's important for the, the build up to the story of his sort of, testimony and, and proclamation of this gospel. And I think the, the temptation sort of ties into that in that it's like, okay, you've been doing this thing. So let me negate it. You know, let me, let me get it. Let me get at your body. You know, you've been trying to like build up the spiritual charisma and authority and, and focus, but like you're really hungry. So I think he's sort of targeting the body in a sort of, in a very sort of basic way, you know, like you, you need to eat, your body's going to stop functioning. Yeah. I think that's right. I think, it's also interesting that the way, the kind of temptation that he offers is for Jesus to work a miracle, which yeah. is a little funny because, or maybe it's especially tempting because of course, Jesus performs lots of miracles in the gospel of Matthew, right? Feeds a lot of people, feeds a lot of people, a lot of bread. <laughs> feeds, feeds a lot no. of people, heals a lot of people, but feeds in particular a lot of people. So, hey, it's, it's maybe not that bad, right? You know, it's just, a, it's just a feeding miracle, no big deal. But of course, I think looking back to thinking about the act of fasting as, you know, an ancient, you know, Jewish practice of, of devotion to God, um, and that which later Christians will pick up, you know, this whole denying the flesh kind of stuff um, as a spiritual act that's what the devil's really pushing against and finding this vehicle in the form of miracle working to negate that devotional practice is i think the point of this first temptation so what happens next what's our second temptation jesus shrugs this off and you don't live by bread alone etc and then satan's like well i got some more tricks here i can make you fly up to this pinnacle of the temple in jerusalem and so you're at sort of this high point looking out over the holy city and you could have this sort of power and you can have it if you toss yourself you leap off into the void you can jump off of this temple and the angels will come and make sure you don't bruise a toe on the way okay down. where does that come from this idea of angels like rescuing jesus one of his well-known attributes is his compulsive quotation of Hebrew Bible scripture. You know, he just can't stop like spitting bars from the Psalms. You know, <laughs> he just happy. He just, he just can't help himself. It's it's maybe it's like part of his punishment. But yeah, it's an image from the Psalms about sort of people, you know, coming. You know, sort of the chosen one coming through unscathed. And 
and I, you know, I sort of jumped the gun a little bit, but yeah, you know, it's, this is, it seems very telling that this is tied to the pinnacle of a temple, right? Why the temple? Right. No, that's absolutely the question here. What is the temple? What, what's it significant about this? I think you pointed us there is that there's something special about Jesus and that putting him at the temple is pointing to an identity, I think, as Messiah in particular, as the anointed one, as the fulfillment of these scriptures that the devil is in fact quoting. Um, and that's how Christians will later interpret him as this one who's going to redeem and deliver Israel, but then beyond just Israel, also the Gentiles will get wrapped into this crazy family of Christianity. And so I think putting him on the pinnacle of the temple is further identifying him and saying, yep, this is our guy, this is the Messiah, the one you've been you know, waiting for, here he is. And so it's interesting that there's like a temptation for him to identify that way, right? Right, and I think it sort of also points to the sort of long-standing conflict between Jesus and the temple authorities in a lot of these these stories. And so, it's almost to say, like, here you could be that kind of authority, that kind of power, that kind of teacher, and that's not really what Jesus is about. He's not spending most of his time in the temple sacrificing lambs. There's a whole different way of doing this that he's going to pursue through these these gospel narratives, and so it's. It is striking to see this, the temple being used in the second temptation is like, okay, like you can show your power here. This is where you belong. But it's also interesting, right? That he doesn't go in, the temptation is not go inside the temple and offer a lamb or read from the Torah scroll or, or whatever. You're supposed to jump off it. And I think that's a kind of Superman move. It's like, I'm better than this old paradigm, this old way of worship even, right? There's a, there's a sense in which we, we might see glimmers of supersessionist Christian theology, this, this idea yeah. that there's a better way through the Messiah in particular, a new From paradigm. From the devil himself, right? Watch out. Right? Watch out. <laughs> um, you want to move on to the third temptation? Yeah, yeah so it, it seems like it sort of goes with the supersessionist aspect of the Christianity likes to claim for itself. And we get this a little bit in the third temptation where the devil is like, okay, I can go even higher. We're going to take you up to these mountains. You know, we're going to see the whole civilized <laughs> world. I don't, it's unclear what mountain he was thinking, had in mind. Yeah, but there's such a geography here. I love the way you've pointed to that. You know, we've gone from presumably the desert floor up to the pinnacle of the temple. And now we have this like high lookout point where yeah. we can see the, the known world. And so like there's a sort of presumed hierarchy to that. And so, but now it's about, oh, like if you, if you worship me, you can be in charge of all these cities. You can be the political power that is this sort of deity on earth if you just get in line behind me. Wait, this, and, so this is like a Titanic moment? Like, <laughs> king, I'm king of the world. Like, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Okay. That, that's the temptation, right? You know, it's like you can be Leo. But, yeah, but it's interesting that it's like, it's political power that's the last temptation. I think a lot of Christians are used to thinking about like, oh, like there's a hierarchy between spiritual power and political power and the spiritual power is higher. And this is kind of giving a lie to that a little bit. Hmm. Well, yeah, Jesus is the anointed one and is the Messiah, is king for Christians, right? So, right, we have to point to a different kind of kingship. There's something that's not right, clearly, if Jesus resists this temptation. There's something meant to be wrong about this. What type of Messiah is Jesus? Is he the one to take over 
not only Israel, but the rest of the world? Is he going to conquer? Is he going to come with an army and conquer and rule in this these temporal kingdoms? And the answer here is a resounding no, right? It's also important that the devil is in the position to offer him that. The devil is able to give Jesus power <laughs> over all of the political world. And so that implies that there's something pretty pretty messed up about politics about worldly power if if it's the devil's domain doesn't that make sense though coming from the authors of the of the gospel of matthew that community is one that is not in political power they don't have a king and so a story like this one that says politics is infected and bad and is associated with the devil the devil's the one who's the prince of this world, you know, a phrase that will come up in the New Testament and other spots. It makes a certain kind of sense to me that we're looking to a, a much more spiritual version of Messiah um, in Jesus Christ. Yeah, and I think it's also part of this, connected to that, it's like part of this apocalyptic paradigm of thinking about history. God's enemies are these cosmic powers who rule the world. And so that there's this infection brewing in the world and in politics itself. Um, and you could use that to explain why your good rulers aren't in control. And I think that speaks to what you're talking about, these sort of more sort of politically disenfranchised communities. Well, like there's a reason because political power is, done, is performed by evil people, is used by evil people. So let's take a moment to step back and go over some of the major themes we've seen as we've examined these texts and as we've thought about the devil as the tempter or you know the serpent. So one that comes to mind initially is that temptation gets at the really deep and really important ambiguities in the notion of freedom that comes to us through the Christian tradition and across drawing on texts from the New Testament in particular. In order to be tempted, you theoretically, you've got to have the ability to resist, right? You have to have that free choice for temptation to be, to count as temptation. Otherwise, it's compulsion or it's just, it's something else. For example, <laughs> you've got Jesus, right? Yeah, um, yeah, just, just be like that guy. Example, just right? be like that guy. <laughs> yeah, just, just do that. Just resist. It's fine. But then you've also got the much more complicated question of, we've talked some about when the devil as the serpent, you know, whispers in your ear what that looks like. But what about, you know, when the devil has his demons possess people, which I think we'll talk about more in future episodes. But here we've already seen the devil also speaking through people, using Eve as a mouthpiece, for example, in the life of Adam and Eve, which seems to push back on the plausibility of Eve's ability to resist that. One way around then is like, oh, do you consent first? to the temptation, and then you become a mouthpiece. Is that what's modeled with both Eve and the serpent in that text or not? Is there a kind of point of no return, in other words, is one way of posing that question. So we've got the question of resistance, the question of that free choice. Is that always the case in all of these stories or not? Um, and yet we've also got possession in particular as involving some kind of moral responsibility, right? You must have acceded to it in some way. And here, think of a couple of examples. You know, Judas, who is the disciple who betrays Jesus Christ and gives him up to the authorities so that he is crucified and dies, right? So that's Judas, for one, is spoken about explicitly in one of the gospel narratives as being possessed by the devil. And then also Peter, your um, <laughs> kind of premier fumbling uh, disciple, who is described in Mark 8, he is rebuked by 
Jesus who says, get behind me, Satan. So if, he is, if we consider him possessed in that moment, you know, what did he do wrong? So that larger question of does possession imply that you've made a free choice? You've consented already. You've had the power to resist and you gave it up. Right. And I think like the example of Peter, I think speaks to this point of, it, it seems like in a lot of these stories and what we've talked about t- today, supporting characters are in this gray zone between possession and moral responsibility and temptation. Like, you know, the cases you've talked about, you know, Peter is not the star. I mean, maybe someone could make a nice argument for it, but like, you know, Jesus's ministry and career is the star, you know, story in, in the gospel of Mark and, and Matthew, et cetera. One of the things I think you see when we look at Adam or Jesus in what we looked at today is that sort of masculine major characters face temptation and deliberate about what to do. Jesus says no to Satan. Adam says yes to Eve. There isn't, there aren't these scenes of those kinds of characters being possessed or spoken through. They aren't tools the way the serpent is or, or mouthpieces the way Eve is in the life of Adam and Eve. And I think that there's, that's really significant in sort of showing how gender plays out in thinking about moral responsibility and thinking about the encounter with the devil, that some kinds of beings, whether they be animal or sort of classified as closer to animal than fully human or fully divine, are liable to being used, whereas those who are gendered masculine are considered in possession of freedom, are able to deliberate about what to do, whether they make the right choice or not. Certainly by the Middle Ages, we get strong associations of femininity with weakness and with the flesh in particular, and the weaknesses of the flesh. And so I think one of the reasons perhaps to explain the popularity of this text in that period has to do with, well, it fits right in with these really unfortunate ideas about what women are. (laughs) This is all in spite of the fact that, of course, Middle Ages have shining examples of women who are moral exemplars. But, you know, that that never stopped misogyny in the past. Still doesn't. So turning now to a question that I want to talk about regarding the fall, the fall of humanity in the garden. Does it render humanity more diabolical, per se? So falling, making the wrong choice, choosing the evil path. Is it just bad, right, on the one hand, or is it particularly like the devil, diabolical, demonic in some way? Another way of phrasing that question is, is there a difference in kind when it comes to the human fall, as recounted in Genesis, but also embellished in the other texts, and the angelic fall, the fall of Satan? Are these really different things uh, or not? We have these stories specifically in the Gospels and the New Testament material, where like redemption of human souls is possible, going back to some sort of moral responsibility, you know, like metanoia, sort of conversion, penitence, this can happen. And it's unclear from what we've seen whether that applies to the devil at all. We don't know at this point, like whether that's, that's considered possible. And I think like one of the things that you were saying about like sort of comparing the falls it makes me want to also thinking about comparing temptations too. So like thinking about like the temptation that we talked about with Adam and Eve versus the temptation that Jesus faces in the desert and on all these different 
pinnacles that he ascends to with the devil. Um, <laughs> we think about like looking at these, like, are these the same kind of, is this the same kind of temptation? What's at stake in each of these things, each of these moments? I think, especially when we look at the gospels, there's this question of like, could Jesus have messed this up? Is there a story there? Are the stakes really high for the temptation sequence in, in Matthew 4? What do they show us? What's the point of having Jesus tempted and triumph, like sort of triumphing through the whole thing? You're really pushing into questions of who Jesus is. Is Jesus fully divine and fully human? What does that mean when it comes to temptation? Is it possible for Jesus to make another choice? And if it's not, then what does that say about the freedom of not only yeah. Christ, but also humanity, right? If, if Jesus is fully human, as Christian theology has it, that he is. Right. And we think of them as narratives. It seems like there's no option for Jesus to make the wrong choice, just as it seems like, and of course, this is complicated because, you know, we're sort of projecting the culture of reading these back onto them. But like, it also seems like it's impossible for Adam and Eve to make the right choice. The whole thing would fall apart if those things were reversed. And so, yeah, it's like another way of thinking about how free are either of these choices. The sort of fabric of these stories depends upon moral failure and moral purity in, in each given case, but it makes this idea of, of a free choice seem a little tenuous. Absolutely. So with that, I think it's time to look forward to our next episode. We talked a little bit this time about how the serpent in Genesis is kind of a weird place to start. But if you look across the whole of the Hebrew Bible in particular, you've got all these other images of the devil, of this composite figure that's drawing on all of these different parts of the Hebrew Bible and of course later the New Testament. So those are worth exploring. We're not going to get a full picture of this composite tradition that develops if we don't delve a little bit more deeply into Jewish scripture. So next time we will think about Satans in the plural, water dragons, leviathans, and last but not least, tyrannical monarchs. So thanks for joining us. See you next time. This pod is made possible by support from the Satanic Horde, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you.